0: Uh, we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians 5. If you brought your Bible, you can open up to 1 Thessalonians 5. Uh, these are literally Paul's final words, at least in this letter, to the church in Thessalonica. Uh, the, the whole sec- segment and section is, is uniquely called Final Instructions, because that's what he's giving. And there's a lot of them, I and mean, we're going to go through them all today, all but the final few verses we may not hit. Uh, But So what I encourage you to do is, as you listen today, and and as God speaks to you, if you have your Bible, underline, highlight, write a note beside it, uh, because there is a lot of truth uh, that He wanted this church to grasp and wanted them to embody uh, as a church as they move forward. Remember last week, uh, chapter 4, had an overarching theme of living our lives to please God. And I think all of us in here would say, well, I want want to try to do that. I want to live my life the best way possible to please God. And and he shared three ways uh, in chapter 4 how to do that, and we expanded on each one. uh, When he talked about living a life of purity, Um, remember that. He specifically talked about a life of sexual purity uh, because he knew if the church missed the boat in this area, uh, it was going to sink them in a whole lot of ways. Uh, To live a life of purity uh, means that we are living a life to please God. And then he talked about the second one, uh, was to live a life to please God would be to love one another well. Uh, that He wanted this church to love one another. There was some infighting, as often happens when you put two or three people in a room together. Uh, but then also in a community of which they were facing persecution. And uh, he s- said, just return the favor with love. You don't need to retaliate. You don't need to get revenge. And we're going to see that today in chapter 5. And then the last thing he says, if you want to live a life to please God, is live a life with hope. Be hope-filled. Uh, specifically speaking, the hope of heaven that's coming our way, that there's a coming king, that he is preparing, John 14, a place for us in heaven. He's preparing for us a room in heaven. That's a promise. That's a promise to each one of us, that we should live with an eternal perspective. Uh, Are there many other areas when you go throughout the totality of Scripture uh, to please God? Most certainly. But that's what Paul talked about in chapter chapter 4. So we're going to be in chapter 5 today. Uh, And you know the backstory. Paul went into town. He started preaching the gospel and preaching about God and how to live for God. And one of the other things he taught about was the second coming of Jesus Christ. And uh, imagine, we know in Acts 17, he was like in Thessalonica and ran out of town within a few weeks. And imagine him teaching on end times and Jesus returning and that crowd not fully grasping it. And then he leaves in the middle of the night to get out of town. It left him with a lot of questions. And I would even argue it left him with a lot of uncertainty uh, when it comes to uh, how this thing is going to end, right? What, how's this going to affect my family? Uh, how's this going to affect me? Uh, how's this going to affect my future? I mean, what what is coming? We want to know, right? And we're going to see uh, Paul address that here in a minute. Uh, but I think we could all agree today, if I ask you to raise your hand, you could probably raise both hands and say, at some point in your life, maybe even now, uh, you face some uncertainty in your life, right? Uncertainty with health, uncertainty with work, uncertainty relationally with people. And uh, uncertainty can almost uh, paralyze us if it's not looked at through the lens of, uh, of Jesus Christ and His Word, right? I was trying to think this week of a time, uh, a picture uh, for, for me when I had a lot of uncertainty in my life. And about five years ago, Natalie and I went to Chicago on our anniversary. And the only one we had was Knox at that point, so he went with us. And uh, we went at the end of April. And uh, end of April, we think it's going to be nice. It was freezing cold. So I had the bright idea even of going to a Cubs game, because every bride wants to go to a Cubs game on their anniversary trip. And we went to the Cubs game. We were really close to the field, like 20 people were in the stadium, because c- it was freezing. We left, I think, the second inning, because we were like, we're out of here. This is the worst. So we left. Another thing we did while we were on the trip um, was we went up the Willis Tower. And I'd been up there when I was a little kid, but it had been formerly known as the Sears Tower, Remember? 103 floors, and I do not like heights. I don't like going up in high places. I don't like looking out and realizing that's my death if I go that way, right? So we are at the top of the Willis Tower, and this was not there when I was a little kid. They built a, a new spot called the ledge. Anybody stepped onto the ledge uh, where it's about four or five inches of some type of glass that could, apparently can hold a human, and it sticks out about three or four feet out? And you can put the picture up. This was my uncertain moment. Nat, we kind of pushed Knox as a little one out on this, and we were sacrificing our own child. There's a story in the Bible about that, and I was so nervous, and then she made me get a picture uh, standing on that glass, and it is just, you're looking down at, at concrete, because that's what's below you, and I was never more uncertain uh, than in that moment with Knox, and then for our own lives, whenever we hopped on the, uh, that particular ledge and took a picture. But anybody else, uh, like, scared of heights besides me? Like this guy in this picture with the ladder. Uh, if I get on a ladder like that, I would be scared. There's all kinds of ladder fails online. Um, how many of you, even with the team that you like, um, there's a lot of uncertainty every single game that comes your way. I know we got a Browns jersey, a couple of them over here on the right. Bengals fans everywhere in the room, uh, but there's always uncertainty anytime they suit up, right? In Ohio, what's another thing that's completely uncertain every single day? The weather. I mean, that picture is us. It's freezing cold last week, and then tomorrow it's going to be almost 60. So it's crazy. But while those are some things that may cause us some uncertainty for a few moments, uh, we can also have some real uncertainty. I mean, some devastating uncertainty. Some uncertainty where uh, we just constantly think about it. Stress, we're anxious about it, we're nervous about it. Uh, Uncertainty to a point where uh, we're reminded of it often through conversation or just stuff that happens throughout our day. And this church, uh, while it was a solid church, uh, they were human beings. And they had some uncertainty when it came to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And uh, let's just jump in and read it, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 1. I'm going to warn you, for those of you that like to read huge chunks of Scripture at a time, um, today's not your day, because we're going to pause a lot as we go through this whole chapter. So 1 Thessalonians 5 through 1, it says, Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates... We do not need to write you. Paul addresses the the top concern that they have. As he left town, he's writing back about this area that they have a concern about. And the area that they were concerned about the most is no different than us today. They were concerned about the times and the dates, right? When is this going to happen? What is this going to look like when Jesus returns? Do I need to fear? Uh, How should I be thinking about Jesus' return? And this idea of times and dates has been uh, for generations. It's been for centuries. People have, have uh, worried about this, thought about this, predicted it. Uh, think about the last couple that just came to mind to me this week in the last two decades. Remember December 21st, 2012, what was going to go on on that day? Uh, we weren't going to make it to, 20, to the 22nd. was the Mayan calendar. It was coming to an end, so therefore we were coming to an end. And we all woke up on, on December 22nd. Remember that? And then uh, Y2K, remember the year 2000, we all stayed up till midnight that night just to see if we would live when the, tro- the clock struck you know, midnight. And we did. Uh, we lived through it. But this church had a lot of the same concerns and thoughts, like, when is this going to happen? We know Paul taught on end times. We know scripture has a lot to say about end times. We're going to talk about it in even more detail next week. But we're going to see Paul here say, hey, don't be, don't be concerned. Do not be concerned about the times or the dates. So as you read verse 1, does Paul acknowledge their question? Does he receive their question? He does. And then he deflects it. He says, church, uh, don't concern yourself with the times and the dates. And then he says, why? Here's why in verse 2. For you know very well. He tells them you already know. You don't need to concern yourself. You don't need to worry because you already know that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. So Paul, what should we be expecting? When's it going to happen? What's it going to look like? He writes back to the church. Don't be concerned about that. You already know. The thing that your Father in Heaven wants you to know is that He's coming back. And He chose to not give us all of the details of when and exactly what it's going to look like. You ever done that with your kids? Like You just, you know, you just give them the, the, the bottom line. Right? You don't need to tell them all the details of how things are going to work out. Our Father in Heaven does that with His kids, with you and with me. And he just wants us to trust him in the process. He says, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. You've got all the information you need to know, church in Thessalonica. What's the information? That the Lord's returning. Cling to that. It's a promise. You can trust in that. Uh, Do we know when? No, we don't. But trust in this promise that he is returning for for his church. I don't know if that eased their anxiousness much. And I'm sure the next verse didn't in verse three. It says, "While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape." So if they weren't nervous before the letter, they're nervous now on verse three, right? But what does Paul remind them in this particular passage? And first of all, I've never, I've never experienced labor. I'll pass, throw that out there, uh, but I've heard. And I've witnessed, by the grip of my wife, the pains of labor, and she said it's painful. So I believe in that. And uh, so what Paul says here is, hey, Jesus is going to return. It's going to be sudden, like labor. Uh, it's going to be final when it does happen. And he even goes to the, to the length. He's going to say, no one will e escape, right? So it's the times and dates. You don't need to know. But here's what you need to know. Uh, there's going to be a group of people that are not in Christ, just living their lives for themselves, living lives uh, to please themselves, and ultimately living lives in rebellion of God. And they're going to walk through this life, they're just going to be living life thinking things are peaceful and and they're secure, but bam, in a moment's notice, Jesus is going to return and it's going to be sudden. And it will be the end. And there won't be many more second chances and it will be final. No escape, Paul says. And then Paul shares this, which probably helped their fear. Because he reminded them, hey, don't worry about verse 3, what I just shared, for those that are in Christ. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief, right? You're in Christ. This day won't surprise you. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. Uh, Paul's reminding this church in Thessalonica, those that are in Christ, you are not living in the darkness. You are not those that will, that will receive the destruction, the torment, the heartache that will come when Jesus returns and you're not living a life in Him or to honor Him. So Paul says, hey, that destruction I just talked about, you don't need to worry about that part. But there is something you need to do. You need to be prepared. And you need to be ready. Ready? We read other areas in Scripture. You need to find yourself faithful when that time comes. You need to be living a life of righteousness, a holy life set apart. Why do they not have to worry about it? Because he said you are all children of the light. We just went through that at Christmas. When did light come into the world? And Through Jesus Christ. We are children of Jesus Christ, the Savior, and children of the day. Children of the day means we're Christ followers, if you want to boil it down. Children of the day means we are secure if we are in, if we are in Christ. So, Paul, what he's doing here, and I think it fits like for us today, not just thousands of years ago. Uh, he's helping this church. I know you're worried about the future. I know you're worried about how this, all the times, all the dates, all the stuff that's coming. I want you to, I want you to live with the eternal perspective, but I want you to live your life right now the way that Jesus taught you. The same is true for us, all of our worry our anxiousness, our, our fears, our uneasiness, our uncertainty, right? Uh, Paul would say, give that to God and live your lives now, in the, live in the moment to please God with your one eye fixed on heaven, right? One hand reaching towards heaven, but don't forget to live in the moment. Don't forget to, 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 to revel in the fact all the things that God is doing in your life right, right now. And I would have to believe in this room today Um. We shared some kind of ridiculous uncertainty moments at the top. But there's probably, I'm guessing, some in here with a room this size that are, have a lot of uncertainty. I mean big-time uncertainty with what's next. And my question is this, is with all the uncertainty you may have with your business, with your job, with where you're going to be moving, with your kids and with relationships and with health and all of that stuff, have you paused long enough in the midst of any of it? And this is hard. This is the hard part. To see God at work in the midst of your uncertainty. Because I can guarantee he is. I can guarantee if you'll tune in, you'll be sensitive to the spirit. You'll be sensitive to the work of God in your life. You can point to those, and we're going to see it towards the end of this chapter. You can be thankful unto God for the ways he's working in your life. Because it's God's will for you to do it. We're going to read in a little bit. And in this room, I'm sure there's those that feel some major uncertainty. Um couple places you may feel uncertainty uh, with your job, there's probably nothing maybe worse and there's a lot of things worse, but when you're in the midst of I don't know what's next, I certainly don't know what God's doing. I certainly fear what's coming next. And I've been there. I've been in those moments where you just you don't know what's next and uh, you're fearful, you're anxious, you're trying to make everything happen behind the scenes so that you can work out what's going to happen next and it's hard. And I can guarantee in that moment as well, I never—I probably never once paused long enough to, to, to point to all the areas that God was at work in my life. I can think of the same thing with, with finances. Constantly checking them, worrying about them, uh, constantly moving things around so to be in your favor, and, and all, all the time thinking about them. And maybe what God is saying, instead of just that owning you, he, maybe he said, "I just want you to be a steward with what you have, not with this imaginary scenario down the road that you're making up of all the things you don't, you don't have." What Paul's saying here is, "Yeah, I want you to think of heaven, but I want you to live for Jesus right now, right now in this moment, because uncertainty. Where's it? What's it lead to? It leads to fear. They could be one and the same. It could lead to stress, anxiousness, worry." And we serve a God in heaven. We talked a little bit about it last week when it came to the first point about purity that wants us to experience freedom. I think it's in 2 Corinthians where it says the spirit, where the spirit of the Lord is there, is, there is freedom. And he doesn't want us to walk around with the weight, the burden of living a life with uncertainty. Paul makes a little bit of a shift here. He's still talking some about uh, the last days, but he's going to really start talking about some nuts and bolts of following Jesus. What does it look like to really follow Jesus? And this is where you get your highlighter and pen out because there's a lot of stuff in verses six through the rest of the chapter. I think there's 28 verses. He says, "So then, in light of everything we just talked about, and it's a lot. We read, we went through the whole letter this last couple month, last month. In, in, in light of all the things we've talked about, let us not be like others who are asleep. Rather, I have something else for you. I want you to be set apart. I want you to be holy. But let us be awake." And sober. So let's be alert. Be awake. Be of sober mind. Uh, a picture that I can think of is when we're driving down the road with the kids in and I think it just happened this week. And we'll, like a fire truck, we'll see one in the distance and I'll be like, fire truck! And they'll all look and by the time they look, it's gone, right? Because none of them are paying attention. How many of you guys point out a deer every time you see a deer? Anybody else but me? There's a deer! And then they look and where's it at? It's gone. And that's kind of the picture I get. Uh, We were driving, saw the fire truck this week. They all missed it. I saw the fire truck, and I pointed it out, and they missed it. And Paul's saying here, don't miss it. Be alert. Be awake. Uh, Be holy. Why? Because I don't want you to miss anything. I want you to soak it all in. I want you to experience everything God has for you. And then he goes on, he says, for those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. He's pointing to this, that there's many in the culture that are just focused on their own pleasures. They're focused on living a life for themselves, a life of selfishness, a life in rebellion to God. Uh, There's going to be a group of people when Jesus returns that's not morally ready for Jesus to return. They're going to find themselves in sin in the moment. Paul says don't be one of those people. Uh, The church in Thessalonica, he was cheering on, Man, be ready for this coming, coming king. But since we belong to the day, he says the same line again. So because you're a believer is what it means. Let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. Church in Thessalonica, church today, I want you to be ready. I want you to be prepared. I want you to be maybe even on guard. Why? And he gives us some spiritual armor to put on. If you have a pen out, write down Ephesians 6. And you can go look at Ephesians 6 and read all the, in greater detail, the spiritual armor that we need to to wear on our Christian journey. Why? Because we are in a spiritual battle. Uh, You may not sense it, think about it, even wonder about it often, but there's spiritual warfare going on around you all the time. The enemy, he doesn't roll over easy. Uh, He knows the way to slip you up the easiest. He knows the one-liner to whisper you, to whisper to you, to throw off a whole day, or to use not somebody else to whisper something to you. He knows ways that we easily get entangled in sin. He knows ways that we're tempted. He wants to destroy you, your spouse, your family, your marriage, your work life, anything good and godly in your life, the enemy's at work to tear it apart. And Paul says, Let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet, when this spiritual warfare is going on all around us, we need to be armed as a soldier is. That's what Scripture tells us. Go read Ephesians 6. It'll tell you more. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9-11, For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath. Did this church know what suffering was like? You bet they did. They were being persecuted. Now, there's many in Thessalonica that did not like them, did not like Jesus, did not like the way, what they called the movement of God at that point. They didn't like any of it. But God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but something better, to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is what Jesus came on, a laser-focused mission from the Father, stepped down from heaven onto this earth so that we could experience a relationship with Him. And then He would use us to be His ambassadors to point people to Him. So whether you're awake or asleep, we may live together in Him. So what this tells me is God has you. And God has me. And we can rest in the security that he is good, that his promises are all true. We can rest in his love. We can rest in his grace. And we can rest in the promise. We can rest in the fact that Jesus is coming back for his church. And then Paul, uh, whenever you read letters or anything that Paul wrote, he always has the one-liner closing, which he always like and brings it all together. And he does it again here. Verse 11, he says, Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, so therefore, in everything I just said, encourage one another, build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. So Paul says, let's boil it all down for all of you that didn't soak up verse 1 through whatever it is, 4 or 3 already. I want you to build one another up. Oh, I know you're worried about the times and dates. I know you're worried about how this is going to affect you and your family and your future and all that stuff. Uh, but here's what I want you to do. Keep your eye fixed on heaven. And then do your best, church, to build one another up in the faith. Stop worrying about the time. Stop worrying about how it's going to happen and when it's going to happen. And start loving the people that rub shoulders with you every single day that are desperate for the love of Jesus Christ. Live now. Live for Jesus now. Keep an eternal perspective, but live for Jesus now. And then Paul gives some his final instructions here in verses 12 through, through 28. And we see him change from really some when Jesus is going to return type talk to uh, some, some real instruction for us as a church. And it's not just good for that first century church, it's, it's so good for us today. So we're going to read a lot of scripture, so bear with us and just try to see what God wants to say to you. Verses 12 through 13. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge, to show respect, to show honor to those who work hard among you, uh, who care for you in the Lord and who admonish you. Hold them tight in the highest regard, in love, because of their work. And then he says this. And this is a highlight type verse. Live in peace with one another. Live in peace with one another. You want to show the world Jesus? Live in peace with one another. Paul says, hey, church in Thessalonica, we're all in this together. Uh, nobody has a greater role than someone else. We're all in this together to get this gospel message out to the world. And if you want to show the world love, in respect and honor, live in peace with one another. At all costs, live in peace with one another. And then he goes on and he uses a word that I don't know if I've ever used. Maybe writing I have, but uh, you may use it. It's urge. He says, we urge you. Like if somebody's urging you to do something, you probably screwed up, right? And you're like, I urge you. You better figure this out. So Paul here, uh, what he's saying is I stress this. I can't overemphasize this enough. You need to understand these next few verses. So those are scriptures we need to perk our ears up and listen as well. It says, we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Some of your Bibles, if you're reading through, may say lazy. Warn those who are lazy, the do-nothings, right? Like they don't do anything. They're just lazy. And what do people do often when they're lazy? Uh, They have a lot of time on their hands, right? And they often find themselves, because they have a lot of time on their hands, in a lot of Trouble, uh, even Paul said, uh, disruptive, uh, and the same can be true spiritually as well. We can find ourselves being idle. We can find ourselves being lazy spiritually. And when someone's lazy, if they're your employee, what are you going to do to help them not be lazy? You're going to encourage them, right? Encourage them this way. Sometimes you're going to you're going to help them uh, understand that maybe with a warning, you need to you need to pick it up. You need to ensure them that their effort is not where it needs to be. Uh, So remember we said the last couple weeks, this community, why Paul talked about work a lot in 1 Thessalonians, is because there was a a group of people that came to be Christ followers, and they were living lives of idleness. That's why he says idle here. And idleness means they came to Christ, a lot of them quit their jobs, and they just thought, I'm in Christ now, he's going to take care of me, and the body of Christ is going to take care of me, and I don't have to do anything. And Paul says, no, 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 no. That's not how it's going to work. I'm modeling to you how Christians work hard, right? Uh, I'm a tent maker. When I'm not preaching, I'm making a tent. And you all need to work hard. Christ followers need to be the hardest workers. So Paul says if you sense that when you see some lazy ones amongst you, uh, whether it be just with their work ethic or spiritually, encourage them, warn, warn them, and uh, it's important to know they need to be pushed sometimes. He goes on and he says, encourage the disheartened. So we warn the lazy, we encourage the lazy, but then we encourage as well the disheartened. Uh, Someone that maybe lacks confidence in in themselves, someone that lacks confidence in their walk with Christ, and they just need someone to come alongside them and share an encouraging word. Um, Discouraged people need encouragement. And that's why the last couple weeks we said, and this is like the third time I've asked you about your homework, so we'll ask you again. Three weeks ago, we asked you to do homework to write a card to three people uh, in this church. They don't have to be in this church, anywhere in your life, and do what Paul did. Encourage them and let them know you're praying for them, as Paul did. And uh, you can send them some scripture if you want, but just encourage them and pray for them. And you get one more week on your extension because next week um, we're going to go to 2 Thessalonians. So we're still in Thessalonianville, at least. So you can still get one more week to write those. I encourage you to do it. But an encouraging word is timely. People that are disheartened need the body of Christ around them. The next one he says is uh, weak, people that are weak. Help the weak. It gives a picture of hold on to people in the church, in the body of Christ, in your community that are weak. Wrap your arms around people that are down and out, that are in a tough spot, whether it be from a health concern, whatever it may be. Help the weak. Because when you do that, you model the most powerful thing in the world, which is love to another person. So help the weak, Paul says. And then he says, be patient with everyone. We're going to skip this one and go on. We can't skip this one. Uh, That's a big one. Learning to be patient, what's Paul say? With everyone, not some people. So even the people that are slowing you down in life, be patient with them. Even those that Can get under your skin in a second. I was going to snap, but I can't snap. Um, Even those people. Yes. Paul says, Paul says, be patient with everyone. And he told this church, we are called to be patient with everyone. I haven't found one in this whole section of scripture that's easy. And the truth be told, they're all hard to do, Uh, they're all things we want to strive to do. But Paul encourages this church, man, if you can do this, you will be a church that's healthy and you will be a church that's making a difference. He goes on, and uh, this church-faced persecution I talked about, and what happens when somebody wrongs you or says a word to you that digs? It's a little bit personal. At times, we want to get them back, right? We want to give them a cutting word back or do something to them that they wouldn't appreciate. And what Paul says here is in verse 15 is make sure nobody pays back wrong For wrong, He says personal retaliation, revenge, getting the last word in, uh, letting that person know you're right and they're flat out wrong, um, is off the table for Christ followers. Retaliation and revenge is off the table for Christ followers. And that's easily done when people are nice to you, right? I won't read that. I'm not going to do that. But man, when somebody wrongs us, look out because that's not the first direction we go, but Paul says always strive to do what is good for each other and everyone else. And as Paul's writing this, he's not saying just do this for people inside the church, but you need to do this for people on the outside of the church as well. Just verse 14 and 15, pretty straightforward, pretty tough to do, isn't it? And if I'm honest with you today, I've blown it in every single one of those areas. I've fallen short in every single one of those areas but Paul says be on guard be aware keep working on these things keep growing in these areas so that you can become more like Jesus and then the last couple of verses we're going to share before we um, really remember and celebrate with Holy Communion together for what Jesus did for us is verses 15 16 through 18 and uh, these these verses are probably um, the most well-known and famous verses all throughout first Thessalonians Um, Paul says to to rejoice always, to pray continually, to give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you and for me in Christ Jesus. It's a nice verse, one we throw out there at Thanksgiving and other times during worship experiences, Um, but it's tough, isn't it? Rejoice always? I mean, I can rejoice always when things are good. How about you? Uh, But when bad news comes my way, or a hard season, or a hard circumstance comes my way, to rejoice always seems like an impossible task. Why would Paul call this church to rejoice always? Why would he call this church to rejoice always? Because he knew true joy, biblical joy, transcends our circumstances. True joy, real joy, transcends the trial you're experiencing right now. So we're not rejoicing in the trial Thank you, Lord, for this trial. Bring them on. I need more, right? we're not We're not saying thank you, thank you, thank you for that. We're saying thank you for our God in heaven that's holding our hand and walking us through that trial and that and that hardship, right? And it's tough. And it doesn't come to us easy, right? And the truth is, there's probably some in this room today right here today. That you're in a moment of uncertainty and a moment of I don't know what's coming next and the last thing you would ever want to do, like when you sing, words barely can come out of your mouth because you don't want to have joy in this moment. You can't rejoice always as the Bible would tell us. But the passage tells us it's God's will for us to do so. So I would encourage you with the last little fiber of your being that that can say I rejoice or God I thank you. I encourage you to think about this that regardless of the circumstance you're facing, uh, say, I'm going to choose to rejoice. Regardless of whether I want to or not, I'm going to choose to rejoice. Regardless of whether it feels right and whether I even remotely desire to, I'm going to say, God, you're good and I trust you. His last two were pray continually. Did Paul say, was he saying, I want you to have your eyes glued shut for 23 and a half hours throughout the day in prayer, right? I don't think that's exactly where Paul's going with this particular pray continually. But what he is saying is, I want you to have a heart. I want you to have a posture towards a holy God that at all times is declaring its dependence upon God. And as you go throughout your day, uh, you realize that the presence of God is living in you, right? And in that moment, um, whether you're in a good time or a bad time, you're, like, you're going to God in prayer all the time. Paul knew if this church would live their lives with dependence upon God, a posture of dependence upon God, they'd pray more frequently. A prayer would be naturally, They would spontaneously pray throughout their day. Maybe you've done that in a season of your life where you have just found yourself praying over and over. And the very last one I want to share is this because it sets us up for communion really well. And it's verse 18 to give thanks in all circumstances for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus when we learn to give thanks in all in all circumstances what it means is we're literally and completely trusting God in all circumstances when we can say thank you God in all circumstances it is a posture unto God that God we completely trust you in all circumstances